Hi, I'm Maya Nowens, IISS Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization and host of the IISS Sound Strategic Podcast. In today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China, or in short, the 20th Party Congress, which took place mid-October in Beijing. The event was widely anticipated to cement Xi Jinping's third term in power at head of the state and CCP, and reflect the level of political control he has been able to amass over the last 10 years. The Party Congress lived up to those expectations, as long-held norms were done away with, and we truly have entered into the era of Xi as an all-encompassing leader of China. But what does this mean for domestic political trajectory of the party and the social contract between the party and the Chinese population, the vitality of the Chinese economy and the possible leveraging of the military moving forward in the next five years? What type of actor is the CCP, and China more broadly, going to be on the world stage during Xi's historic third term and beyond? How might this impact potential flashpoints such as Taiwan in the short term? Here to discuss these topics and more with me today is my colleague Nigel Linkster, Senior Advisor for Cybersecurity in China at the IISS in London. Nigel, welcome back onto the show. It's always a pleasure to have you on. It's great to be here again. We've had a little bit of time to digest what happened at the 20th Party Congress, which occurred mid-October. What stood out to you? Yeah, a number of things. In order of priority, I think the most important was the way in which Xi Jinping comprehensively dominated the selection of the new Politburo, new Politburo Standing Committee. I think I was one of many analysts who thought that she would feel obliged to throw the odd bone in the direction of other political interests, in particular the Communist Youth League. But in the event, this didn't happen at all. He really did you know, scoop the pool, so to speak, and in the process completely emasculate those elements of the leadership that had come up through the Communist Party Youth League uh, system, more so than I thought, because everybody thought that Hu Chunhua was going to be the kind of coming man from that direction. And he was kind of summarily stripped of his vice premier position, ejected from the Politburo, and that's kind of him finished. The other so-called reformer, though I think we need to use that term cautiously, Wang Yang, also ejected from the Politburo. And we've now got a top leadership, uh, none of whom has anything resembling an independent power base. And everyone totally dependent upon Xi Jinping. To my mind, that was the thing that stood out. I thought the general atmosphere was rather different in that we saw much less of the leadership publicly schmoozing with the party faithful than we have uh, typically seen. They tended to appear only in the formal sessions, and the formal sessions were very formal and scripted. Of course, they always are. But this, this too seemed to me quite interesting. There are one or two minor episodes that uh, attracted attention, of course. You know, the whole question of you know, why Hu Jintao uh, left the final session of the Congress. I, I think a lot of analysts have kind of been projecting their own hopes and wishes onto that particular screen. 
my own sense is that, that this was simply a case of uh, a sick elderly man getting a bit confused because we know he's suffering from dementia and you know simply led out of you know event in order not to disrupt proceedings obviously but also for his own sake one or two other things that various netizens picked up on the fact that uh, Xi Jinping isn't terribly well educated and uh, notably mispronounced certain uh, characters during his speeches. And afterwards, I think the head of the Central Policy Research Office, who was giving an account of proceedings, said something and then realized that C had mispronounced it. So promptly corrected himself, so to speak, and you know, went on to mispronounce it. These minor distractions were few and far between. And I think that overall, the machine rolled forward pretty much in the way that we had expected and with pretty much the results that we had expected only, so to speak, more so. And perhaps what's more interesting about the whole event is what's been happening since it ended. To touch on some of the things that you said, I, I completely agree about there not being many surprises. If anything, you know, the fact that she secured a third term, that wasn't a surprise to anybody who's been watching how the last 10 years have unfolded. The fact that there hasn't been a successor, I thought was an interesting outcome as well. So now we're not just talking about a third term, which is already historic for Xi Jinping, having removed that um, presidential term limit previously. But we're now also looking potentially at a fourth term because there is nobody in line that we can point to and say well that that's obviously somebody in the next generation who she might push forward in five years time to replace him absolutely i mean if you look at uh, the people on the politburo standing committee which logically is where uh, xi jinping's uh, successor should be in age terms alone there is nobody who can plausibly qualify and one or two people who one might have thought you know, might be on there and, and could potentially play that role. I'm thinking of Chen Minar uh, in particular, you simply don't feature. So no, absolutely. And a total absence of succession planning in marked contrast to what Xi Jinping himself experienced when he was uh, being prepared for that role. What did you think about the tone of the Congress itself and Xi Jinping's speech? So Xi Jinping's speech was quite short. The party Congress work report that was published after his speech was much longer. So things that were missing ended up being written in that document anyway, or, or have been written and were covered in that document. Overall, I thought the tone was triumphant, but it rang a little bit hollow. I mean, clearly there were admissions of problems that the party faces domestically, but also very much internationally as well. In the past, we've heard of Chinese leaders speak of an era of strategic opportunity. I think that seemed to be fully gone. You know, there was this admission that strategic opportunity is waning and that now China has entered an international context that's starkly different, one where quote unquote, China has to be more mindful of potential dangers, be prepared to deal with worst case scenarios and be ready to withstand high winds, choppy waters and even dangerous storms. And, you know, above all of that is this narrative of the need to understand that Chinese people and Chinese government is going to have to struggle over the next five to however many years that this is a, a dominant narrative in, in, in the outlook of this country. So what did you take away from that tone? 
absolutely that. The focus was in, in Xi Jinping's speech you know, was notably on, on security. He mentioned many more times than he you know, mentioned any other uh, issue and certainly far more references to security than to the economy, for, for example. And yes, I mean, there was one mention of a period of strategic opportunity, but that was qualified by you know, a following uh, clause, which emphasized that simultaneously that we're entering a period of growing risks. And that message was you know, clearly being hammered home as was the narrative of struggle which Xi Jinping has progressively been building during the last few years of his last term. And that has been very much carried forward in the things that Xi Jinping has done and said uh, since the Congress ended. So yes, the messages are triumphal and there was great progress on the so-called achievements of the last uh, five years, though some of them, as you say, look a bit hollow. The struggle against COVID, for example, and anybody who imagines that that has been won uh, has clearly not been paying attention. But of course, you know, it has to be that way because nothing Xi Jinping does can <laughs> be characterized as a failure in, in, in the situation that we currently have. So there was, you know, a lot of triumphalism about, you know, defeating COVID, about eliminating absolute poverty. And whilst the United States was never mentioned by name. It was you know, very clear that uh, United States actions and behavior were weighing heavily on the minds of uh, China's leadership going forward, going to be a considerable determining factor in, in what happens, for better or worse. I mean, there one or two other things that come from that. Firstly, anybody who thought that zero COVID was going to be relaxed the minute the party congress was over, I think will have been disappointed. There are rumors going round now about committee, supposedly under Wang Huning, which is supposed to be looking at ways of nibbling at the edges of current zero COVID strategy. But I think there's a profound skepticism uh, about whether that even exists, and if so, how far it will go. There was some speculation that after the party congress, the wolf warrior diplomacy uh, that has emerged under sea would be ratcheted back. It is quite clear that that is absolutely not going to be the case. The broad conclusion that I, I draw from all of this is, firstly, politics is in command in a way that it's not been since the Mao era, and ideology is absolutely key. I mean, there, there were some things that we were expecting on the ideological front that didn't happen, certain things that were the two establishers, for example, were not introduced into the party constitution. There were certainly a number of references that essentially formalized the relationship between Xi Jinping and the party, making them in effect coterminous which has been very much a C message from the outset. Other things introduced into the party constitution, including statements on Taiwan. Overall, we've seen a formalization of some of the ideological formulae that uh, Xi Jinping has been pushing. We didn't see him declared leader or helmsman or any of the other titles that we suspected he might have arrogated to himself during during this Congress. That does not mean that this won't happen. It just means it hasn't happened yet.
He's clearly shown he has enough grip of the party and the state establishment as well in China for it perhaps to be superfluous at this point in time, though perhaps for personal and legacy reasons at in some point in the future, we'll, we'll see that happen. I want to turn back a little bit before we move on to Taiwan and kind of strategic outlooks, externally speaking, to look a little bit and unpack what we've seen happen throughout the Party Congress in the last few years, and certainly in the last couple of weeks, about the role of the economy. And you mentioned already that the economy got a lot fewer mentions than, for example, this idea of security and certainly national security, for which she has pushed forward an idea of comprehensive national security. And you're absolutely right. I think that the mentions of security doubled in this 20th Party work report versus the 2017 one. What does that mean at the end of the day? I mean, does that mean that the economy is taking a backseat to you? It, it would seem to me that the way we've thought about the legitimacy of the party, what that's based on is continuous economic growth, and if not continuous economic growth at the same rate, at least the promise that every generation will have a better quality of life than the one preceding it. What does this mean for that social contract between the party and the people and the way that we're going to see China be run over the next five, ten years? Well, I think that Xi Jinping is in the process of rewriting that contract. It's pretty clear to me that Xi Jinping does not know a lot about the economy, isn't actually very interested in the economy, and to the extent that he is, sees it in very classic Marxist terms as being about production and distribution. Consumption you know, is not high on his agenda. Uh, we, we've seen him adopt a very Puritan approach to the you know, excesses of uh, some of his uh, fellow party members. And I think that reflects a, a genuine dislike of conspicuous uh, consumption on his part. If we look at the appointments that he's made you know, in terms of replacing the people he has been relying upon to manage the economy, Li Keqiang as uh, premier, Liu He as vice premier, and Wang Qishan as a kind of advisor, these have been replaced by people who may have had some involvement in an engagement with the private sector. I'm thinking particularly of Li Chang, who is probably going to be you know, the next uh, premier replacing Li Keqiang. None of the people coming forward have anything like the broad understanding of uh, how economies work and how the international economic order functions as the likes of Liu He and Wang Qishan, who, who do have a very deep knowledge. So there is a deficit there. Xi Jinping clearly wants to develop and promote a more statist approach to the economy. And it's interesting, for example, that we've just seen a major reopening of the kind of Maoist era distribution centers for um, agricultural produce. That's quite a, a sort of retrograde step, I think, in, in, in many ways. Xi Jinping is preparing to take China in, in a rather different direction from that which it has been pursuing for the last 30 years. The writing is on the wall for rapid economic growth in China has been for some time. Figures are almost certainly much lower than presented. This is partly a reflection of a new reality, but partly a reflection of a deep ideological conviction that China needs to move in another direction. The numbers presented are, are likely to be lower than the ones published. Uh, that's certainly true. I would say even then they are were lower than they were expected to be if we look at targets from the government that were published. All of this to me is fascinating because we've seen such a 
drive towards making China a high-tech power, not just a powerhouse domestically or regionally, but globally as well in terms of taking a global leadership role in advanced technologies. With the turn in the Chinese economy, the shift back to this Maoist era thinking about a planned economy and a command economy rather than a market-driven economy, and thinking about you know how much she has valued uh, state-owned enterprises over the private sector, you know all of these things to me don't add up to a convincing picture. So uh, for me, what I'm going to be looking at in, moving forward is what the role of the private sector really is going to be under President Xi. For me, that's a really big question, and what that ultimate means for those high-tech ambitions at the end of the day, um, for China to become an AI leader or a quantum leader or anything like this. Yes, a lot of funding I think is being directed towards these initiatives for China to be able to still achieve some of those goals. I mean, you in particular, uh, Nigel, have been looking uh, at how much energy and resources have been directed at the semiconductor question as China increasingly becomes uh, cut off from uh, the world's supply of advanced semiconductors. It's a question for me. The pieces of this puzzle don't yet fit together. No, I agree. What was the first thing he did with the new Politburo Standing Committee? Take them on a visit to Yan'an which was kind of the crucible of the Communist Party. You know, this was the revolutionary base, you know, where it all happened. And he's evoked the spirit of the Red Flag Canal and even, you know, talked about the foolish old man uh, who moved mountains, which is, you know, a kind of Maoist, voluntarist uh, approach, you know, that sort of human endeavor can conquer all uh, obstacles and a kind of call to arms to China's youth to abandon their indulgent lifestyles and be prepared to shed blood in order to carry the vision of uh, a new China. But going to your point, I mean, I agree. I don't think that what we are seeing at the moment is a coherent um, economic model. China's been trying for some time now to reduce, if not eliminate, its reliance on external and particularly US technology. It's spent billions of dollars trying to develop advanced uh, semiconductor production in China. And most of that money has gone down the drain. I mean, there's a $40 billion central fund, so-called big fund, um, that was designed to achieve this outcome. And all the top people managing that fund are now under investigation for corruption because you know they've spent all this money and they've got practically nothing to show for it. And we've seen something similar happening in the provinces where, you know, e even larger sums have been spent to very little effect. And all of this, of course, has uh, coincided with a decision by the United States to really clamp down on the sale of advanced uh, semiconductors and uh, machinery for making them. Uh, and this is going to be extended very soon to other areas, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, quantum, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody can be quite certain how far America is going to go and what the impact of it will be. But the cumulative effect of, of what the United States has been doing is clearly not going to be helpful to China in terms of its technology and economy ambitions. You mentioned about, you know, this call to, to rallying in China, this sense of struggle that's being discussed. But I think the other thing that I noted is that the threat perception seems to be more externally focused than domestically focused. And I wonder how you read the comments made in the work report and some of the appointments made, I suppose, with regards to Taiwan and the position that the next five years 
of this leadership team might take on Taiwan? In a way, we got mixed messages in relation to Taiwan. There was a clause introduced into the party constitution committing the party to resolutely opposing Taiwan independence and also calling upon the military to kind of up their game and get ready for 21st century wars. On the other hand, we also had a fairly lengthy piece in the report, which talked about the fact that people of Taiwan you know, were Chinese, blood is thicker than water. We want to promote peaceful reunification. The only th and we want to make a clear distinction between the majority of the Taiwanese people and a small number of those uh, seeking to promote uh, Taiwan uh, independence. So the, the, the message was kind of, you know, we, we, we still want to do it the soft way, but, uh, you know, if we have to do it the hard way, that is what we are, are going to do. I think, you know, obviously, that, you know, Taiwan is very difficult because left to itself, China would probably play the long game, you know, take the view that they can wear uh, the Taiwanese down through, you know, gray zone activities, plus, you know, a certain amount of carrot to, to soften the stick that the United States and its allies, you know, don't really have enough skin in the game to want to really, you know, fight for Taiwan if it comes to it, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But, the, you know, the problem is that they find themselves in a dynamic with the United States, whose own intentions are by design still relatively opaque in terms of what they might do in a Taiwan invasion uh, scenario. And of course, you know, that, that makes it much more difficult to, uh, for them to stick to, you know, their preferred script, which is, you know, play it long and, you know, reel Taiwan in, you know, slowly but surely. Added to this, of course, you know, you, you mentioned the new appointments, and, and in particular, I'm, I assume you're thinking about the Central Military Commission. You know, interestingly, uh, Zhang Yuxia has been uh, retained as the first deputy, even though he's way over the uh, retirement age. I think he's 72 now, isn't he? But of course, uh, Zhang Yuxia and Xi's uh, family go back a long way because Zhang Zhongxun and uh, Xi Zhongxun uh, were together uh, in northwest China during the Civil War. Didn't actually have a very good war, but let's not dwell on that because that would be uh, historical nihilism. Zhang is one of the few people left in the Central uh, Military Commission who's actually seen combat knows what it's like to hear bullets uh, uh, whizzing past. The second uh, deputy, I think, is the former head of the uh, Eastern Military Region, which, of course, is the region responsible for you know, the Taiwan Strait. So, you know, we've got a concentration of effort there. Of course, everyone in the Central Military Commission now, you know, is, is very much there as a function of Xi's own patronage. So he's got a very firm grip on the Central Military Commission. And obviously, the PLA will be looking hard at the whole Taiwan issue in the context of Ukraine, asking themselves what are, you know, they know perfectly well what their main vulnerabilities are. The challenges for them are, you know, to, to, to overcome them. And of course, they, they have certain 
uh, features in common with the with the Russian army. You know, they're they're both products of a Soviet uh, military culture with uh, a rigid top-down command structure, a lack of uh, non-commissioned officers, and they still can't do real joint operations. You know, what they call joint operations are actually operations by parallel service arms with a certain amount of communication between them. So they've got all these problems. The bottom line in all of this is that there's only one person who's really going to make any key strategic decisions, and that will be Xi Jinping. And nobody's going to be able to really argue against him. So if Xi Jinping, for whatever reason, comes to conclude that peaceful reunification is no longer on the table, there's precious little standing in the way of China moving in a more kinetic uh, direction, whether that be you know, a massive naval blockade or, or, or something more. We, you know, we don't really know yet. I think I completely agree with you, Nigel, on on, uh, all of those points. I think from the outside at first glance, a lot of media uh, attention has been given to the fact that uh, He Weidong actually served as the commander of the Eastern Theater Command. Uh, It's interesting that he was actually moved out of that role really briefly um, for a number of months earlier this year, even far prior to the um, Pelosi exercises, into the Joint Operational Command Center of the CEMC, giving him a little bit more taste at a higher level, perhaps, of that joint operations in practice um, at a higher level than he would have perhaps been privy to as uh, the commander of the Eastern Theater Command. But by and large, looking at the rest of the people on the Central uh, Military Commission, and for those of our listeners who aren't sure of what the Central Military Commission is, it's the highest level decision-making body of the People's Liberation Army, and of course has a highly uh, personal, as Nigel noted, tone to it with a lot of personal connections being favored close to Xi Jinping. A A lot of also, I think, surprising promotions Noting here He Weidong, who has never served on the Central Military Commission and suddenly is second-ranked vice chairman, that's unheard of as well. But in terms of, you know, what I see as the main trends is that that political loyalty and whatever little bit of military experience there is left from this Sino-Vietnamese war and perhaps, you know, exercises or border skirmishes with India, those have been prioritized for ranking positions in the or membership of the Central Military Commission, which gives you a flavor of the fact that she still values that experience and also that that experience is still needed to help professionalize and prepare the People's Liberation Army, that that's a real area of weakness for them, of course. On the point of that jointness that you spoke of, I mean, it's really striking to me that there really isn't any representation of the PLA Navy or the PLA Air Force, both of which would be front and center to uh, a Taiwan contingency, regardless of the shape that that would take, I think. I mean, we have Admiral Miao Hua. He was retained as a member of the Central Military Commission. And although he's technically from the Navy. His background is PLA ground forces. He was a political commissar of the PLA Navy rather than a long-serving operational admiral in, in the PLA Navy. And from the Air Force, that's completely omitted. So again, what do we draw from that conclusion that jointness isn't important? No, not really. Jointness is very important. We know that much from uh, both a work report and everyday writing uh, and also operational guidelines for the PLA. Um, but perhaps this isn't the platform in which we should look for jointness. 
Um, perhaps there aren't enough people that have gone through the system that reflect a joint background just yet. Perhaps the Central Military Commission is really about highlighting other priorities and, and administrative tasks. The last thing that I would note is that the um, likely to be next uh, Minister of Defense for China, Li Shangfu, who is also a member of the Central Military Commission, has been sanctioned by the U.S. government um, as a result of uh, China acquiring fighter jets and surface-to-air missiles from Russia previously. So he was sanctioned when he was the head of the CMC's Equipment Development uh, Department in 2018. And so what happens when you have a defense minister who is technically meant to be your outward-facing official at the highest level that's meant to engage with the United States, hopefully in a bilateral fashion, um, and, and they've been sanctioned by uh, that government in question? I mean, it's, don't really know what's going to happen with that and, and how that can be resolved uh, or whether special arrangements may be made uh, so that he can still participate in, in some sort of uh, discussion outside of the United States uh, and China. Well, it is a very good question. I mean, the U.S. in the past has uh, shown a capacity to be uh, pragmatic here. Uh, I don't you know, envisage any uh, visits to Washington anytime soon by you know, people at that level of seniority anyway. It's more a question of face. How can you expect the defense minister under sanction to be willing you know, to, to deal uh, with the USA? So I think this is one the USA is going to have to solve. And you know, if they want to, then, you know, they, they, they will find a way. It's hardly comfortable. <laughs> Maybe just, you know, we're coming up to around 30 minutes. Um, maybe to wrap this up, what do you think all of this means for China on the international stage, both in terms of what we've seen since the party congress and how we should be thinking about the next five years? What type of actor are we dealing with? Well, I think we're going to be dealing with an actor that is more determined, more committed to pursue its uh, strategic objectives, is going to be more, I guess, obstreperous, less willing to give ground on any issue that it perceives as you know, being in its interest. I expect uh, you know, the pressure from China to alter the model of global governments, you know, to, to, to try to erode the US-led post-war model of, of global governance. Uh, I expect to see something similar happening uh, within uh, cyberspace, within you know, the, the rules governing the cyber domain. China has calculated that uh, it still has a scope to try and peel Europe off from the United States, and we can expect um, to see that you know those efforts uh, continue. I think China, you know, still enjoys significant appeal in what we rather ill-advisedly, in my view, talk about the developing world or global South. Uh, I think both, unfortunately, patronizing sounding terms. We haven't come up with anything better. China is going to be very much in never apologize, never explain mode. In short, I think it's going to be you know, a, a more difficult um, actor, partner, uh, rival, adversary, call it uh, what you will. I mean, Xi Jinping is by nature very stubborn, not uh, readily disposed to change course or, or give ground. I suspect that uh, if things continue to go wrong for China in the international arena, as I am pretty sure they will, 
that will not prompt changes in outlook, but will rather encourage China to kind of double down on the course on which it is now embarked. Yeah, it's not a very hopeful outlook, uh, I'll admit. Uh, the one thing that I worry about, just to add on to that, and I fully agree with you um, on those points, and maybe circling back to the very start of our discussion, is the flexibility of China as an actor moving forward. I mean, we now have a leader who, yes, has cemented immense amounts of control over the party and over all branches of state and, and, and party bureaucracy. On the other hand, he's also surrounded himself with men who are unlikely to push back, men who are unlikely to show disagreement in, in terms of important areas of policy. So there's the question of whether or not that makes this a more predictable actor or a more unpredictable actor. And in my mind, it makes it a more unpredictable actor. Because at the end of the day, as you said, via v Taiwan, there's only one person who's going to be deciding on policy, and that's going to be Xi Jinping, and none of us in the open source world have an idea or a sense as to what he's thinking um, and have a good insight into um, uh, his his own personal thoughts. So in that sense, I would be readying myself for the next five years to see a, a China that could make decisions perhaps more rashly, that could perhaps then change its perception of being risk averse, could throw us some surprises, whether positive or negative. Yeah, Xi Jinping has developed something of a track record for taking risky and uh, impetuous decisions. And as you say, Mayor, the, you know, the, there is now very little in the way of checks and balances. I mean, at the same time, I think for China more generally, not just externally, but internally too, the fact that there is really only one person who can take decisions can hardly enhance the efficiency of, of governance within China. We've now got a situation in which people have very little incentive to take initiatives or take risks, notwithstanding the fact that they are constantly being urged to do so, abandon formalism and you know, so on and so forth. Uh, but the political realities are, in today's China, you'd be mad to do it. So, you know, I don't think that, you know, this, this augurs well uh, for China's own future development if we carry on down this path. Well, Nigel, it was a fascinating discussion, as it always is speaking to you on all things China. Um, thanks so much for joining us, and undoubtedly you will be back on the show again in the near future. Thanks very much, Mayor. It's great to carry on the conversation. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the WWS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the WWS website. Thank you and see you next time.